0: Hi, how's everyone doing? Yeah. yeah, Thanks for coming out tonight. Woo, woo. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, please give it up for Sean Norris. <laughs> and to Sammy Jones. Yeah. And to Yana Feeney. Woo. And to Brexit. <laughs> good one, good one. Um, yeah, thanks so much for coming uh, tonight. Um, yeah, uh, and apologies uh, for the late change in lineup, but I would say you got an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> um, which was what Sammy and Sean asked me to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, <start>. so um, <laughs> what we're going to be talking <laughs> about. So I'm the writer in residence uh, during the Grace and Perry exhibition, and um, it's kind of, I've seen it a bunch of times, and it's thrown up a lot of stuff for me around. Um Toxic masculinity and class and brexit and British values and my own feelings around what how to be other in the u k post brexit how to be like you know trolls keep telling me online that um, brexit and the the current government is proof, and um, the rise of the white, of white supremacy in America. And Trump is proof that multiculturalism has failed. And I grew up in a multicultural society, and I don't believe it has failed. I don't. I just um, I didn't have an end to that depressing sentence. Um, <laughs> and the exhibition has really kind of made me confront what I feel about multiculturalism, what I feel about a society that embraces a plurality of voices. Um, and it's made me think a lot about class and. Um, what British values actually are and so all of these things have kind of been swirling around in my head so um, uh, I, just, I put this panel together to kind of have a sort of freewheeling chat about these things to kind of see if I can cement in my mind what is going on um, so just to give you a little bit of context um, around my feelings about Brexit um, 20 minutes after the result came in uh, someone tweeted me and said it was time for me to pack my hat my bags and go back to Brownland where's Brownland it sounds cool Um, another person tweeted me and threatened to set my greasy ass on fire and these were just the two memorable most memorable tweets of a deluge of tweets from um, the far right Um, because I'm quite prominent on Twitter I'm quite outspoken about my beliefs and um and so, I had a heap of people telling me to go home, um which is harrowed by the way, um, a lot of people threatening me or um and i was obviously wasn't the only one and you know you, you kind of you, you kind of this constant question about what the referendum was about kind of comes up and f- um for me the 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 most compelling thing has been this forty six percent spike in hate crimes. Um, And when I I talked to some friends about all these tweets, when I talked to my father-in-law about all these tweets that I was getting, they all said the same thing, which was, oh, it's just an isolated incident. It's just a bunch of idiots. It'll all calm down. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. When I was in my teenage years, I was cycling across. I, I was cycling, and I cycled onto a zebra crossing, and I was hit by a car. And as I was lying on the floor trying to work out what happened, the driver of the car got out and called me a blind packie. And that moment has stayed with me for the last 20-odd years. That moment caused so much, like, anxiety and depression in me. Like, I spiralled after that. I I didn't leave the house. I used to basically, every time I was invited out um, by my friends, I would insist that I made a very, very formal and rigid plan with my mum about her picking me up even though I lived next to like a big bus system and a big train system in London because I was so anxious about being out in case someone called me a blind Paki. that was an isolated incident and that incident haunts me to this day and so when people talk about these isolated incidents I I wonder if they kind of realise the impact of said isolated incidents and we'll get on to like your own isolated incidents um, and um, the impacts that they, these things have on our lives um, because the thing that is kind of perplexing for me is um, when we think about Brexit, when we think about this country when we um, for, for years and years and years we've had like a very single narrative around this country and um, one of the things that I wanted to do um, to kind of have a diversity of voices being published because I truly believe what we read, what we see on TV, what we listen to on the radio from the moment we're born affects us and sets our aspiration levels and so that's why I'm so adamant that there be more inclusion and better representation in the media that we consume, in the art that we consume from, from an early age um, I'm often I'm reminded that um, one of the most uh, for demographics in the world um, is like 12 to 65 year old um, straight white man and every story is about straight white men. And so when I think about diversity, when I think about inclusion, that inclusion and that diversity isn't necessarily about me. You know, there is something very, very powerful in being seen, um, in feeling represented, in having your experiences mirrored. Um, and I, I'm reminded of the, the Juno Diaz quote where he talks about how monsters have no reflection in, and if you want to turn a human being into a monster then you deny them at the cultural level any reflection of themselves. And so for me as a person of colour I think being reflected, having, uh, s- seeing my, myself reflected in popular culture is important because it, it does directly affect my aspiration levels. But it's not just me who needs diversity, I'm already diverse by my, the very nature of my existence. And it's this demographic of straight white dudes, 12, 11, 10 to 65, or what have you, every, where everything is about them, everything is made for them. And the, the most telling example of this is... Um, when was it? In 2016, when the new Ghostbusters film came out, and they recast all the Ghostbusters as for women and the internet was mad because this sacred cow of a film had been ruined to further some feminist agenda and you had all these straight white dudes 11 to 65 going apeshit on the internet because they could suspend their disbelief for a world where there were ghosts who needed busting (laughs) but they could not suspend their disbelief enough for the thought that four women could do it and who and who got the majority of the abuse? Um, it was Leslie Jones, the the black woman, and that was very very telling for me, that, you know, um, we talk about the diversity of Game of Thrones, <laughs> like this is a fantasy world where there are dragons, where 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 are where are the the black and brown people in Game of Thrones, we talk about the diversity of uh, Lord of the Rings, where are the black and brown people in Middle Earth? Oh, well, it's historically accurate.
1: Um, <laughs> and
0: again, Gino Diaz once said, uh, and I apologise for swearing, but I've already said apeshits so or whatever, um, he once said, motherfuckers will read a book that's one-third in Elvish, but I write two or three sentences in Spanish and suddenly we're taking over the world.
1: <laughs> um,
0: so, anyway, um, just to cut a long story short, I put together a book called The Good Immigrant, and um, it came out, and my, my initial plan for the book was for it to, um, sorry, my sister's texting on WhatsApp group about Secret Santa, which I think is way too early, especially for a bunch of Hindus, but there you go. Um, I could just feel my pocket vibrating. LAUGHTER um, um, where was I so yeah I, we put the book out and, and the book for me was pretty much a way of promoting uh, more diverse voices in publishing I don't know if, if like uh, this is the book here uh, I don't know if you guys have come across it, it it's 21 writers um, people like Riz Ahmed and Bim Madawumni and Musarok Wonga and Coco Khan and nishkumar they all wrote essays about um, race and immigration yeah. in the UK and um, I, I put it together because I was really, really sick of um, people saying that people don't read books by people of color, which is doubly insulting because it assumes that my skin color is a marketing trend and then it tells me it's not a very lucrative marketing trend. And I wanted to show that people do read these books and this book has gone on to be a bestseller, it's gone on to win awards, and it's been a really really amazing journey. And the thing that um, the thing that was really, really powerful was as it kind of it came out, it kind of entered this sort of political, um, dialogue with what was happening with Brexit. It was sort of in conjunction, like the advanced copies went out like the week before the referendum results. And, um, you know, so many young people of colour came up to us in the, the big nationwide tour that we did and sort of said that they, they felt like their stories were valid or their stories were important. And that was really, really telling that there was this generation of young people who were reading this book and felt seen, which I think is a really, really powerful Thing. Um, so during that time, which, uh, during that time, you know, I'm you know, appearing on lots of things talking about race and immigration. And one of the ways that people derail the conversation about race and immigration is to basically go, it's not really about race, it's about class, actually, like those two things are mutually exclusive. And I kept hearing that. And one day I just very pithily tweeted, I would totally read a state-of-the-nation collection of essays about class in the UK. Um, I would love it if a publisher did it. And a publisher called Dead tweeted me back like five minutes later and said, we'll do it, and here it is. Um, and it's got writers like Kit De Waal and Catherine Flynn and Sean and uh, Gina Barrett. And um, it's, it's also been a phenomenal success because people want these stories. And I'm going to get Sean to talk about the book in a second. This is a very long-winded um, way of introducing our panel. Um, and the other thing that I was thinking uh, about was how to follow up the Good Immigrant, because you know it's good to do a collection of essays about race and immigration, but um, what other things are important and. All the while, while I've been writing, I also work over the watershed running a youth magazine called Rife, where we mentor young people to create content for a digital platform called Rife, and it's, it's really, really inspiring. It's one of the best jobs I've ever had. It is the best job I've ever had, and we thought not long, we, well, we thought, given the statistics around Brexit and the youth vote, and, you know, in hindsight, given the statistics around the general election and the youth vote, where the youth um, overwhelmingly voted Corbs and they voted to remain um, and lots and lots of young people that I was talking to through Rife um, felt very unheard and very unlistened to we thought well why don't we follow up, up The Good Immigrant with a set set of essays about being young in the UK today and um, so we started putting that together and then one of the, Sammy who is one of, used to work at Rife is one of our alumni, made a very very good point which was um, it's all very fine and well, you Nick Esch, Mr 38 year- old. I know right. <laughs> um, putting together a book of essays written by young people, but you kind of need some sort of young person as part of the creative team, and we that we're makes
2: like,' me sound way harsh.) <laughs> yeah.
0: And we were like, this is a very interesting way of um, asking for a job, Sammy Jones. <laughs> uh, well, it it was, worked, it, all right. Yeah, it was a good point. And so we got Sammy to co-edit the book with us um, so that the the editorial steer of the book had uh, a youth voice. And we crowdfunded for that as well, which we did with The Good Immigrant. And that is coming out in September next year. Um, so... That's our panel, basically, and that those are my sort of muddied thoughts about um, what this conversation is. So, Sean, yes. um, when when Dead Ink decided to do the um, do this collection of essays about class, um, why did you think it was a an important collection to do, and also be why you why did you want to be part of it?
3: Um, I think. One of the reasons it was an important question is a lot of the stuff you've touched on. So first of all, after Brexit, there was a huge amount of conversation about class. And also um, in America, after Donald Trump's, that, should I move it closer? Yeah, okay, yeah. sorry. Um, after Donald Trump's election, again, there was a lot of conversation about class. And, and this idea that the working class was a homogenous group that was white and male. And, um, you know, one of the things I think is really great about the collection is there's a huge amount of female contributors and a huge amount of BME contributors because the idea that we have of the working class in the UK has always been represented as this sort of white male voice. And the good thing about Know Your Place is it's like that's not what working class looks like. That's not who these voices are. Um, my essay is slightly different because it's talking about growing up outside of a class system and growing up in a marginalised household. And one of the reasons I wanted to write about it was um, on Boxing Day, the film Pride was screened on television. And I don't know if you've seen the film Pride. It's about when a gay rights organisation in the 80s joined up with a, the miners' strike and offered support to the miners. And then this person tweeted, and I think he was a professor. I mean, He was a, a well-read academic chap that this was a film that the the left loved because it was the liberal metropolitan elite coming in and saving the white working class and i was absolutely furious i was because one of the it was just this kind of forgetting that during a during the 80s that gay people were not the liberal metropolitan elite like gay people were dealing with incredible entrenched homophobia both state sponsored and cultural And also, that all gay people are middle-class Londoners, you know? And I was just like, one of the things I love about the film Pride is that you see all these gay characters from very different backgrounds, some of whom are the liberal metropolitan elite, some of whom, like my mum, are from North Wales, and I was like, we need to challenge this narrative that certain groups of people come from certain backgrounds and live within these spaces and don't have any other aspects of their identity. And so that's really what my essay was about, about growing up in a gay family in the 80s and 90s, and how that felt, and how we weren't part of the liberal metropolitan elite, that we had our own sort of struggles and battles. And so it felt really exciting to be part of a project that understood the need to challenge a homogenous narrative about class, but also to to give a voice to so many different people and their experiences.
0: Uh, One of the the things that I learned very, very quickly doing The Good Immigrant was that <clears throat> when you talk about race publicly, you quickly become the spokesperson for diversity, or yes. the spokesperson for race, and it, it creates an alternative single narrative. And the, the thing in the curation of the book that I thought was really important was, A, I didn't do it like a political manifesto. B, I didn't try and be all... Inclusive, like, and try and get one from one community and one from another yeah. and one from another. And the other thing was that was really important. The other two things that were really important was A, I, like, uh, another thing, I didn't agree with absolutely everything that was in the book. Um, and another thing was that there are writers who disagree with each other in the book. And I think that's a small but quite important thing because it allows for there to be nuance amongst different communities and different people within. The same communities um, in the way that they react to things. Um, when when you read the book as a whole, what like what was your reaction to to it?
3: Well, I think it, it's exactly that. Again, it's it's challenging that homogenization. It's saying that people's experiences are are different, and also the reviews have all been very very different, and people have picked out different stories and different aspects. Because I think there is this. I mean particularly coming from a a feminist activist background there's this belief that we all just all we all have a meeting on the 1st of january at feminism hq and we all agree (laughs) on the key issues of the year and and that's what and, and there's no sense that there is a diversity of opinion that people will come with different backgrounds different ideas and and i think it's it's this very it's this huge simplicity of that makes it then very easy to dismiss people's voices to to say, oh, well, that's what you would say because you are from this background, or that's what you would say because that is your political hobby horse. Um, And one of the things I thought, I was watching Gary Young's documentary about Angry White America last week, and he kept bringing up the point which I thought was really important about how the vote for Trump was a, a, a very rich white vote and that actually the poorest people in America, the real working class in America, are black. And yet, however, when we talk about the working class in America or in the UK, we talk about white people and white men in particular. And so to bring those sort of conflicting ideas, different experiences together is to say, you know, this is like when you did that first tweet, the state of the nation sort of collection, which is, which is needed.
0: Yeah. And, and Sammy, um so, working at, working at Rife, we've kind of, you've, I guess, found yourself at the face of youth issues. And, um, it's
2: like some Welsh.
0: Sorry? It's like some Welsh. Uh, yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> uh, and one of the things that you, you articulated to me when we were sort of thinking about how this book should come, should come together and what it should look like was this sort of feeling of helplessness that sort of pervades like the younger generations in terms of um, whether things matter or whether, you know, t- things like have doing a degree or, you know, getting, getting on the housing ladder all these yeah. things matter or whether it's much more like a survival instinct thing.
2: I think that my survival instinct has kicked in for sure because when I look into my future I can't really see much that my parents might have expected like having a deposit for a house before I'm 30 or being able to have a kid because I don't have any money or having a really stable job and yeah I think once you sort of live that when you come out of uni or if you don't go to uni for so many years that it becomes your reality and your aspirations just become lower and lower (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I have to laugh because otherwise I would cry
0: (laughs) Um, I I remember a piece that you did did for us quite early on was where you, you phoned up your dad um, and basically went through all of the stuff that he achieved at certain stages in yeah. his life and all the things that you were, you kind of... Like, looking at whether those things were even comparable for you anymore.
2: Yeah. So, like, don't get me wrong, I know that it's always been hard to own a house and sustain your mortgage, but I think what was hard has now become impossible. And I think that my generation and people my age are really struggling with feeling like an adult and transitioning up into adulthood and feeling like they are achieving in the way that they should be achieving because the timeline for our generation is so different to the ones of our parents, and it's really difficult to accept this new reality almost.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, let's, let's, let's talk about the UK. Okay, the United Kingdom because um, I guess for me things like things like Brexit and things like this poll that was in the Telegraph last year where 49% of people thought that the British Empire had a positive impact on the countries that it had colonised because <laughs> thanks for the railways guys <laughs> um, and I think a thing, that, a thing that's really kind of, that I just, I, do, I don't feel like I, I have an answer for is what does the future of this country look like? Like what, what, what is the next, you know, so much of um, Brexit seems to be about a sense of national identity but what is that national identity? Because whenever you, you if you look at what British values are uh, as per the curriculum that, you know, they're about respecting the rule of law and tolerance for other people's beliefs and, and uh, other people's belief systems and then when you ask people they give you really flippant stupid answers about tea and marmite and queuing and talking about the weather and somewhere in there is some sort of national identity that we're all supposed mm. to be proud of because um, the other thing is is colonialism and it seems to be this thing that people don't really talk about mm. yet um, it You know, for a lot of, I guess maybe in the the filter bubble of, you know, my particular corner of the internet where I say very like liberal things and then people remind me that um, the British Empire gave us railways. Um, Maybe I don't know, I'm not going to finish that thought because I don't know where I'm going with it, but you can see it's confusing for me. Um, So like, how do you feel about the UK? Like what what do you feel about our collective national identity?
3: I was thinking about this earlier because I thought you might ask me a question about it.
0: Because <laughs> so I, like, I told you I would.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it made me think, when Brexit happened, and I was in Lincolnshire, which is not a place you want to be the morning of Brexit when you're from Bristol. I can, it, was, it was being stranded in, in Brexit country. Um, and I got asked to contribute a sentence to 3AM magazine, who were doing a roundup up of, of writers and artists' feelings of Brexit.
0: Oh yeah, I couldn't do it. I didn't send anything in. I was just like, I feel too numb by this.
3: Yeah, I think I just sent it from like, crying in my hotel room. But, um, and I wrote, I want the country I thought I lived in back. And I've thought a lot about that sentence since, because I don't know if it's what I'd say now. Because I think when I wrote it, I was like riffing on the I want the the kind of taking back control sort of message of Brexit. And then I realised later on that saying I want the country I thought I lived in back was actually reflecting my own blindness and my own massive amounts of white privilege because the country I thought I lived in was the country of the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics. Like this kind of everything seemed really joyful and happy and multicultural and... A kind of beautiful gathering together and you know it was and all
0: Russell Brand sang, I am the walrus did he yeah I was
3: very drunk I mean <laughs> <laughs> like, I just <laughs> I remember them playing my boy lollipop and that that was basically my take out of the Olympic opening ceremony <laughs> um whereas actually the country so you know there's me going oh I want the country FYI, I lived in back this kind of happy positive place that was moving forward with progressive values and and, and that's not the country that my, you know, Romanian sister-in-law lives in, where she'd been experiencing kind of comments and discrimination. And, and so I was kind of celebrating this idea of Britain that was very much free my white privilege mirror. Um, and so now, and I think... But at the same time, I think that what Brexit has done has given much more permission for those ugly things that I didn't see or didn't consider or was able to ignore, with the the 46% rise in hate crime and also a huge rise in homophobic hate crime that came after the Brexit vote. So there is this sense that even if this undercurrent and these actions and this violence was already existing, it has been given permission to be more public, I think. And I don't feel particularly hopeful. That that's going to change unless... My main hope is that we're going to be in transition for so long that everyone will just go... <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to have to really work hard on, on the, the cultural aspect and the societal aspect. And in terms of British values, I there was an article in the Daily Mail yesterday, sorry, um, yeah. by Sarah Fine, double sorry, <laughs> 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 where she talked about tolerance. And I was And I'm really, really sick of the word tolerance because... I think, you know, as you say, in the curriculum, that is seen as a British value. We're tolerant of other beliefs. We're tolerant of other sexualities. We're tolerant of, other, you know, all these things. And it's like, no, I don't want to be to, to be tolerant. I, I want people to be equal. I want people to be free. I want people to live their lives on their own terms in a in a positive and equal way. And this idea of, oh well, we'll just tolerate you. We'll yeah. we'll allow you to be here. We'll we'll, we'll allow you to exist in this space, but don't expect respect don't expect equality, just expect tolerance and I think this idea of British values has gotten very tied up in this in this word tolerance in a very unhealthy and unhelpful way
0: it's, it's interesting like and it 's about the particulars of language there yeah. that I think is really really important um, because tolerance I, I file in the same box as the words inclusion and diversity yeah. because Diversity is still still requires a sense of othering, yeah. because we are celebrating that otherness. Yeah. And inclusion still implies that
3: we're letting I, you in.
0: We're let we're yeah, we're, the 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 faceless we or the faceless they is including you. Yeah. Um, and I yeah I I and I I don't know what what the right words to use are. I mean obviously these are words that kind of become. Sort of shorthand quite quickly, but you kind of you are you, it, you, know, you know when you say a word over and over again until it makes no sense w- excuse me with those words, the more I say them the more I kind of start to hear the insidiousness yeah, of them I know? think
3: so and he, I mean you could go down a real rabbit hole with equality as well and like equality with what equality with which values equality mm. with who who has power like but I think you know the fact that tolerance and inclusion have become these celebrated value words that aren't interrogated enough as to who holds the power in that relationship.
0: What about you, Sammy? What what <laughs> what do you what do you think about the UK right now? Like, are you feeling like? I mean, I guess. I mean, I mean, you painted quite a bleak p- picture earlier. I but can't
2: help it. <laughs> <laughs> I. Um, <laughs> Well, open se- the, the first time UK let me down was when do you remember when Nick Clegg had to go back on his promise about student fees? I'm
0: sorry. I yeah. I'm still sorry. sometimes get the song in sorry, my head. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, I know that
2: was a banger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> again, like before that, short like I think also I was living in some sort of blind blind world where everything like because it happened to me that's yeah. when it really kicked in you know. um, and then after that I think it's just kind of like once you see something that you can't unsee it and then start thinking about sort of what is the UK doing to help young people what is the UK doing to sort of bolster any sort of trust in the government for young people instead of just supporting the grey vote over and over again. And I really struggle to identify with anything that happens in Parliament because it all just seems crazy, antiquated and strange. And even when you put someone like... Do you remember what name, name Mary Black in there? Mary Black, the young woman. Like, even her, even though she's definitely what she's doing, she's an amazing person. Yeah. But even watching her, because she's so young, in there she just looks really odd, and I don't think it should be like that. I think the whole thing needs an update. I can't, I can't see myself in it, you know. Um, and I know it's really important for me to try, <laughs> but I feel like there's blockers being put in the way of me identifying with my country. As a young person, and I think I know the answer is because they don't care about me.
0: Well, there's, there's been this interesting ongoing debate, um, and I think it kind of it went to Parliament again last week about reducing the the voting age to sixteen. Mm. Like, do do you think that that would make a difference?
2: Absolutely, yes. And I think that the like I think it's the Tory government that won't let it happen because they know that it will swing against them.
3: Well, they filibustered it, didn't they? They wouldn't let the vote happen. They just filibustered, and so they I didn't
0: know that. <laughs> was it Philip Davis? Was it? Don't. No, was Don't. it? I, was <laughs> right. I got beefed. He tried to sue me earlier this year. So there <laughs> go. That's another story for the the bar. If you would like to know about Philip Davis and me and various uh, projects that I worked on, um, Sean, could you read a little bit from your essay in Know Your Place, yes. please?
3: So, I'm just going to read from the beginning because. I had a look, and, and then I was like, if I start halfway through, all the context is lost. And so I'll we'll just go from the beginning, and I'll just read the beginning. It was summer 2016, the summer when questions of class and identity became ever more pressing, as the media and politicians created caricatures and stereotypes of what it meant to be working class, male, white, and living in the north, and what it meant to be middle class, male, white, and living in north London. As these debates and arguments raged across the headlines and political Twitter, A friend and I shared a bottle of Prosecco in a sunny beer garden in a now-gentrified area of Bristol, where we all live. I was telling her of my plans to do a writing residency in a local art gallery when she asked, "'What university is it where your dad teaches?' "'What?' I said. She repeated the question. "'I should have quipped the HMS Arden, "'except you can't go there now it's buried at the bottom of the South Atlantic.' "'My dad doesn't teach at a university,' I replied. "'He didn't go to university.' "'Oh!' she exclaimed, sipping her drink. Oh, but I thought, I thought that's why you're a writer, because your dad's an academic. I shook my head, startled into silence. But this conversation stayed with me long after we left the pub. The more I thought about it, the more questions it prompted in my mind. Why was there an assumption that, in order to pursue a career in the arts, my father had to work in a similar field? Why did my friend think that for me to write, my father must have helped me to get there? And what message does that send about who we think gets to be an artist and who they need to know to reach that position? But most of all, it got me thinking, what is my relationship to class? And where do I position myself in terms of class privilege? Where exactly do I belong? And that led me to my childhood and living in an outsider or marginalized family. So let's go to the beginning. My mum grew up in North Wales, in a small steel town that sometimes makes the headlines when the sector is hit by a financial crisis. My grandad worked in the steelworks until Thatcherism and the gutting of British industry left him without a job, and then he became a delivery man. My nana was a housewife, a dinner lady, and then a warden on a council-run old people's estate where they both retired. So my family's background was fairly working class. And the town they grew up in is identical to hundreds of towns all over the post-industrial north. A town that transitioned from bustling community to one that lost its identity. It's both depressed and depressing. In 1982, my parents got married, mere days before my dad shipped out to the Falklands War, where his ship, the Ardent, was bombed. And although he survived, many did not. And I came along in 1984, so you can work out how old I am, and my brother wasn't far behind. So far, so 1980s childhood. And then, aged four, my parents split up and my mum came out as a lesbian. It can be difficult in these heady days of equal marriage and equality legislation to remember just how homophobic society was in the late 1980s and throughout the 90s, the period in which I grew up in a gay family. So one way to express it is to look at the law. When I was growing up, gay adoption was illegal The age of consent was still 21 for gay men and 16 for straight couples. Civil partnerships weren't introduced until the early noughties, and at that time, equal marriage seemed like an impossible demand. And during this time, it was still accepted that children could, and even should, be removed from their gay mothers if the father contested custody. And of course, when my mum came out, sex between men had only been decriminalised 20 years before. But perhaps most significant for me and my family back in 1988 was that Section 28 had recently been written into the law books. This ruling banned what is called the promotion of homosexuality in government-funded organizations. And what it meant in practice was the total silencing of conversations and discussions about LGBT issues in school. So Section 28 effectively outlawed public conversations about families that looked like mine.
0: Thank you. I'm j- I'm just going to read a short bit from my essay in *The Good Immigrant* because it talks a little bit about this idea of language and language's importance. Um, I guess the things you need to know about it are it's sort of written as a letter to my child, um, so that's the you in the in the essay. <clears throat> One of the many online arguments I've had about the importance of language, how language can hurt, has been about tea. Chai means tea. Chai tea means tea, tea. The number of times you see this on a menu makes you wonder why people can't be bothered to do their research, like naan bread 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 (laughs) a comedian Kamel Nanjiani an avid gamer once expressed his delight that the Call of Duty series finally set a level in Karachi the city of his childhood now one of the top 10 most dangerous cities in the world he was appalled on playing the game to see that all the street signs were in Arabic not Urdu he talks about the effort put into making each so- follicle on each soldier's head stand out, into making their bootlaces bounce as they ran, the millions spent developing this game, and how at no point did anyone decide to Google the language of Pakistan. In Jurassic Park, they refer to Pachycephalosaurus dinosaurs as Pakis. The Pakis are escaping, one of the techs exclaims. The budget for this movie is $150 million. If I had to place a value on how much you would have to pay me in order to call me a paki to my face, it would be more than $150 million. Words matter. Words are important. The casualness with which someone I'm working with refers to two coloured girls. The casualness with which a person having her photo taken with a nice view and me obscuring the corner of it asks her husband to ensure he gets one without the Indian in it. The casualness of being on the last train home from London to Bristol in the same car as the bar listening to two drunk white men in their early 20s rap at each other. N-word, we made it, repeatedly, with excruciating enthusiasm. They're just quoting rap, someone might say. They're just drunk, they're just harmless, they're just exuberant. They're dickish but exuberant, but language is important. Years before, I sat in an Indian restaurant around the corner called Oh, Calcutta. I found the exclamation marks alarming. The place was, and I'm going to just say at this time because this is a Bristol audience. Um, the place was at that time owned by a white guy. As I sat with my best friend and his then girlfriend staring at the disco lights, listening to Kula Shaker sing, govinda jaya jaya, gobala jaya jaya, I read the menu. One of the dishes listed was chicken chuddy, described as an exotic blend of authentic spices, tomato, and peppers. It sounded so generic. What is an exotic blend? What are authentic spices? Also, tomato and pepper, these are your biggest tastemakers, apart from chicken in the dish. What is chicken chuddy? Also, as we all know, chuddy means pants. I told, his, told my friend and his then-girlfriend, and they laughed at the whiteness of it all. Ah-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha, ha, 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 they said. Cultural misappropriation is hilarious. I felt mortified for the owner, who'd probably been duped by someone he'd asked for a word that sounded exotic and Eastern, <laughs> and authentic, probably. Maybe the chef was having a joke with him. Maybe he was having a joke with his clients. I looked around. Everyone in the restaurant was white. It was a hipster student paradise. The mix of cod, eastern, Britpop, minimal red lighting like a ru- moody. <laughs> I nearly said a Rudy Mayan Gosling film. A moody Ryan Gosling film, and the prices. It felt like puppetry of food, the biggest crime. Not only was the Western Balti curry now synonymous with my country's cuisine, but now we had white guys aping the food we made to fit in with the white guys. I called the manager over. The, um, the chicken chuddy, I said. You know that chuddy means pants, don't you? He laughed. Ha, 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 he said. You're having me on, right? It's a specific exotic blend of authentic spices. Nice try. It means pants, I repeated. He smiled, itching to get away. I let him, but language is important. So... um we're all writers, right? Writers, and Hi. right. And uh, Sami, I'm going to ask you this first. Um, given that these are very, very turbulent political times, what role do you think the writer plays in like political times? Do you think we have a role now more than ever, or do you think, you know, it's our duty to kind of reflect society, or we kind of just carry on as normal, sort of taking the peculiar- peculiarity of the times?
2: I think writers should write about what feels right <laughs> for them. Um, I don't think that uh, a writer should have to force themselves into writing something about what's going on at the moment, just because it's happening. I, and because most of the time I don't even <laughs> want to think about it, let alone write about it. In fact, I really struggle writing about it because it almost makes it seem more real. Um, But, at the same time, writing is so important as a resource for hope. Um, And I think without reading other people's writing at the moment, I think I would feel very alone, because I don't think the mainstream media is telling us the whole story, and it's always really important to remember that there's other people being affected by these things, not just loads of stats and facts and figures and stuff. Um, and I think it's really important for us as editors as well to give a platform for people who don't usually have a voice to be able to talk about stuff like this because I'm guessing that there are a lot of people now that are feeling a lot of feelings that they want to get across.
0: I, th- I think the, th- the thing that I, I find quite a lot is that it's very easy to kind of look at. The news and feel massively helpless and hopeless about what 's happening in the wider world and sometimes i, I feel like the writer 's duty isn 't to look at things as macro as Trump or brexit or mm. austerity and actually find the micro within the w- within that to kind of to tell the stories of people who um, don 't get as you said don't don 't get to have their stories heard but also to kind of to find connections in like places that feel much more tangible, um, and I, I've been th- I've been thinking a lot about how that then applies to sort of my feelings around maybe instead of you know <laughs> trying to bring down the government, I should like try and do like local activism, and that to yeah. me probably feels like success. There would make me feel more hopeful. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What about you, Sean? Um,
3: I think personally, it. Well, I was joking earlier with a friend. I was like, why why didn't I go into fashion journalism? Why am I obviously in political journalism? But I do absolutely believe in the importance of using the written word and using my skills as a writer to, A, challenge the political narratives that I feel are dangerous and also to give a voice... Not give a voice, sorry, that's the wrong word. People have a voice. To provide a platform to raise up voices. Um, I think, particularly in journalism, it's a very narrow group of people writing and and we can see how those, that has created problems in who gets heard, which stories get told and one of my favourite journalists is um, Frances Ryan who writes for The Guardian and she has been absolutely dedicated to talking to people who have been really affected by austerity particularly disabled people and making sure that the impact of government policy on their lives is being publicised and I think as a writer I do really feel a responsibility to to find those stories and tell them in the best way I can and in terms of fiction as well I feel that even as a fiction writer I have some kind of political responsibility to tell unheard stories or untold stories Um, so the, the book that I've been working on is very much focused on a community of women living in the 1920s whose history has kind of just been seen as a a niche subject, a side issue is not of interest compared to the men in the 1920s who we all have known and heard about with their big strapping hunting trips and their drinking sessions and so even in that very small way it's like I want to tell these women's stories, I want to change the way we think about that period, I want to make sure that this incredible creative energy isn't forgotten about Um, so I do feel that writing both fiction and non-fiction has huge potential to change the conversation and to influence political change, but I also agree. It's, I think, just after Trump got elected, all I could do was write about Trump. I just, I just was like, every single thing that he did, I'd write a blog post about it. And then I started to get really anxious and panicky, and was like, maybe I need to turn the news off for a while. And it can feel that those are the incredibly huge issues that we can't necessarily look at or take on. But finding those, the people whose stories are not being heard or not being listened to or not being considered, as a writer I want to be part of that conversation and part of the effort to make sure those voices are heard, and I I apologise for saying giving people a voice because I don't, that's not the right way, people have a voice they're just not being listened to, so it's about opening that up
0: I I listened to a really interesting uh, interview with Tana nehisi Coates uh, the the, the amazing writer um, on the podcast Another Round which I really recommend that you go and listen to and he was talking about how he didn't write to make pe- to entertain people or to make people feel comfortable and good literature should make people feel really uncomfortable and this this level of discomfort is a thing that i kind of i've been thinking about a lot um because you know when you're a writer and you're a writer who's very outspoken about issues around race and you do lots of speaking Events, people invariably ask you. Um, white, other white, white writers in the audience eff- effectively just ask you all the time about cultural appropriation, and um, whether it's okay for them to write a black character, which is essentially what th- what they tend to. To, to ask and and the thing that, always kind of, stays with me is this this thing about how. Um, when, you know, when people. Write, writing for me is a conversation, and so if I write something, um, p- someone is perfectly within their rights to disagree with me. I don't know everything. I know very little, in fact. And the worst thing I can do if they, they pull me up on stuff that I've got wrong is get defensive about it. Mm. You know, it's really important that I listen. And too often that I find that where people get really defensive is where the writing has made them feel uncomfortable mm. and i think that's a really really interesting space mm. um like do, do you, have you have you been in that situation as well with like some the writing that you've done
3: um i would say people have never been afraid on the internet of showing their disagreement with what i write <laughs> um but yeah i think absolutely and I, I say that flippantly but you know most of the non-fiction writing i do most of journalism i do is about feminism and a lot of the kickback that I get is obviously from very angry men and I think that that it is that moment of discomfort because when I write about feminism when I write about abortion rights when I write about male violence against women I'm challenging A, the men that don't believe they would ever do these things or have these views and and that's when you get the not all men response (laughs) and B, the men who do do these things and don't want to be called up on it and it is that that you're trespassing on this space, you're trespassing on their discomfort and the response is to lash out and to, to to try and silence you because I think a lot of us don't want to confront our complicity in systems, we don't want to confront our complicity in inequality. So for example, some of the writing I've done about the sexual harassment scandal and the Me Too stuff, you get a lot of pushback because men don't want to think about the times when maybe they stayed silent, when their friends were being unpleasant, or maybe they took it a little bit too far, or maybe they put pressure on a woman or said a sexist joke. And there's that very much like, oh, no, I don't want to think about this, I'm not that kind of person. And so it comes out as this: they lash out because you've made them uncomfortable. And then, as I say, you get the men who are just plain misogynists who want you to shut up, which is, which is always fun, those fun days on Twitter. You just hide under a blanket and hope (laughs) no one finds you. (laughs)
0: You you just reminded me of um, so I I did I did one of the events that I did for the Good Immigrant. Uh, It's about this sort of this idea of discomfort that kind of happens when you kind of present this conversation, and then an audience member essentially then needs you to solve their internal Mm. problems for them. And someone came up to me, like it was it was an event that had been funded by the Arts Council, and this person came up to me with like the evaluation form that you tend to get at the end of most Arts Council events, and took real umbrage with this evaluation form. And she was pointing at it, and I was just the chair of this event. I hadn't organised it. I hadn't applied for the Arts Council funding, and she said, "This equality monitoring form. What what do I tick? Um, do I do I do I tick that I'm white or?" And I was like, however you self-identify it is, is what you tick. And she said, well, the thing is, um, my, my grandmother was half, half Italian. Does, does that make me B-A-M-E? And I said, if you identify as B-A-M-E, then that's what you put down. And, she, and then she said, so, so tell me about you. Um, where are you from? And I was like, I- I'm from London. And she said, no, 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 where are you really from? I was like, I really am from London. <laughs> <laughs> northwest to be specific. And she said, no, come on, where are your parents from? At which point, because I've been in this conversation a lot, at which point I said, the answer's not going to be helpful for you because, um, because you want me to tell you that my parents are Indian, so you can basically go yes, you're not from round here, but actually neither of my parents are from India and it just won't be a helpful conversation for us. To which she replied, I don't know why you've got such a chip on your shoulder about this. (laughs) I would be really, really proud if someone asked me that question. You know, whenever whenever I call up customer services, I always ask the person on the other end of the phone's name and they always tell me their name. And they always say, no, no, come on, what's your real name? And then they tell me their real name, and then I ask them to spell it, and I write it down, and I pronounce it properly, and they always say thank you to me. And I was like, yes, they work in customer services. They have to fucking be nice to you. Um, but don't go up to random people and go, no, where are you from? No, you, where are you really from? No, where are your parents from? No, you're fucking foreign, which is what is happening. Um, sorry, that's what you reminded me of.
1: <laughs> but it's
3: that discomfort. It's because well, I'm a nice person. I I don't have these prejudices, and now you're making me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, but it's that response, and it's you know, in terms of sexism, it's just like well, I'm a nice, nice guy. I don't say these. I don't laugh at these jokes. Or maybe I did that one time, and now I feel uncomfortable because you've challenged it. And it's it is. And we've. I mean, I've, I, I But if you if you don't challenge, if you just nod and smile and go, oh no, I'm sure. I'm sure you're fine then then you never challenge it and people's minds don't get changed and the not all men's my <laughs> not all, oh, hashtag I'm, not all men
0: <laughs> i'm currently working on a uh, an essay as part of this residency about masculinity in kind of response to some of the stuff that's has everyone seen the the grace and Barry exhibition uh, if you haven't you really should it's, it's free and it's just over there um and i've been thinking a lot about this and like the, the kind of the silent complicity that you talk about. Um, but I was just wondering if like, how, in terms of your personal response to kind of the themes around masculinity that are in the exhibition, like how, how you kind of felt that it's presented. Did you?
2: Yeah. Um, I, well, first of all, I think that it is raising some really good conversations because I have three small brothers and it terrifies me to think that they would not be able to articulate their feelings well enough, uh, and that would drive them to suicide, because y- young men are the ones killing themselves the most. Um, but on the second hand, I don't know whether that the exhibition gets across well enough. Did you watch the um, the gender, like the, t- the TV show that Grayson Perry did? It's all about him going t- up north and meeting all these, like, big masculine blokes who fight in, like, MMA um, and meeting, like, the parents of young men like that who had killed themselves. And he created the vases that are in the exhibition as a response to that. Mm. And I think that's great and I think that's one side of the conversation. But what I really worry about is the people that have been the worst to me and my female friends and have been the most predatory characters in my life have been men that would not identify with that male stereotype. Mm. They are like artistic and they're sensitive and la la la, la. And then they're just absolutely. They come to the Arnathini
0: on a Thursday night. <laughs> guys. And I'm waiting for them with a baseball bat. <laughs> um,
2: but it just... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I would never do that. I would never do that. Uh, don't tell anyone I said that. <laughs> I worry that they... People, men like that would watch a programme like that and view the vases and think that mm, it's uh, not, not me.
1: Hashtag
0: not all men. Yeah,
2: but particularly, uh, like... Not me. It's not me. But it's them. Yeah.
0: Well, it was is so them. What's inter- <laughs> what interesting about that is, at the end of last year, I was, I was coming home late from London on, on the train and I was racially abused by three blokes. And i felt suddenly felt very intimidated and i couldn't do anything in my space and um i was like i don't know i I don't if if someone tried to hit me i don't know what i would do so my reaction to it was to join a boxing gym and take up boxing and um, through a bizarre set of circumstances, because I'm part of the liberal metropolitan elite, I ended up doing a series about this on Radio 4. <laughs> <laughs> Did you actually? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You a nightmare. I know. And, <laughs> and, um, and a thing that I'd never considered before, um, a, a criminologist who had done, like, a, an ethnographic study about boxing and young men, um, uh, uh, she basically said to me that is a really male response like what you've done you've basically um had this situation where you felt like you couldn't defend yourself and um instead of like what you've done is you've signed up for like a form of consensual fighting yeah. rather than learning self-defense or non-violent communication or conflict management or any of those things and i thought it was really i'd never considered like that my reaction in joining a boxing gym was strange in, in any other way I found it quite empowering yeah. but like it then made me start to go well what does this what does this mean like what does this mean for me which which I think um I, I became you know I had that sort of anxiety about mm-hmm. what you're talking about in terms of oh I am those people yeah you know? what like in terms of the exhibition what like how did you react to some of the stuff around masculinity and,
3: um, well, I think I really agree with, with what Sammy says, that I thought one of the things I really thought was interesting was the tapestry banner of this sort of, this minor style banner. And again, those questions of identity and loss of, loss of a culture, loss, and how that creates a sort of entrenching of masculinity. But I I do worry, again, that when we talk about masculinity or toxic masculinity, that we're talking about a very specific personification of that and not exploring how men benefit from male privilege Mm. and those inequalities don't just belong, or they intersect with other aspects of identity. And I think that that needs to be really explored a lot more And I think one of the things that's come out in the last few weeks, perhaps, particularly with Me Too, and particularly where I am in journalism, that a lot of the men who have been accused are not the kind of caricature of the sexist predatory man that perhaps we think of and that perhaps is reflected in that exhibition.
0: Mm. Thank you. Um, we're going to throw out two questions from you guys in a second. Sorry, Chloe. Um, but before, before we do, uh, two, two bits of housekeeping. One, um, copies of The Good Immigrant and Know Your Place are on sale through the Arnovini bookshop. And they'll be selling copies outside. And um, Sean and I need to eat. So please, buy. Me? write a book, Sammy. <laughs> 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 Next September, when our book comes out, you can eat. Um, and we also need to buy uh, Sammy some snacks. Um, <laughs> that will come in nice and, uh, That's the first bit of housekeeping. And the second bit of housekeeping is um, uh, I'm, me and a couple of friends, uh, Rosanna and Adiba, are going to be in the bar DJing some national anthems. And we can't decide on a, a DJ troop name, so I think for tonight we're going to call ourselves Make Britain Brown Again. Um, LAUGHTER but come and jam out to some national anthems we will be playing bangra and Shout garage out. yes i am 38 years <laughs> um so questions chloe hi is there a microphone there is a microphone can you just uh, talk into the microphone please thank you uh
3: thanks your books are obviously really great. i've read good immigrant but i haven't read um Sean's book, and I think if I'd read your story, Sean, at growing up, it would have been really, really important. So I'm kind of wondering. Okay, so if, if this, it seems a lot that you can access this online, and if you're on Twitter and reading articles, but what about? I work a lot with old people,
2: mm-hmm. and I
3: work a lot with young people. And is there some way that you can kind of team up, get these books to people that actually really need to read them right now? Um,
0: that's a qu-
3: kind of a question.
0: Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's been quite uh, an interesting struggle trying to ensure that The Good Immigrant gets out of its echo chamber. Mm. And um, one of the ways that we tried to get it out of its echo chamber was... Um, so what happens in publishing is when you have your hardback, your hardback comes out for the first year, Um, and then your paperback comes out and it's half the price and that's when the majority of the people buy the book and what tends to happen to the leftover hardbacks that are in the warehouse is they get pulped and um, recycled and made into new books which is great Um, but what we had a thousand books left in the warehouse and I wrote to the publisher and asked them if I could buy the books off them for cost price and send them out to schools for free Um, and they were like, no, no, we'll, that's a really good thing. We will do that, and um, so we basically put a call out through various networks and got a thousand addresses of school librarians and sent them copies of the book. Um, and that was really, really easy thing for us to do. It was, it was a, an admin pain in the bum, but it was a good thing to do. And and I'm hoping that other publishers sort of look at that and go you know, there are some books that maybe we shouldn't just pulp and, you know, we can we can recycle them and get them out to people who should read them. Um, but the thing is, like, I guess with young people from the stuff that we've done through Rife is, like, the majority of stuff is online and, like, the stuff that we do in schools.
3: Can I jump in as well? Because I think it's um, quite interesting that both The Good Immigrant and Know Your Place have been crowdfunded books and they haven't come out with mainstream publishers And so there's only a very limited amount that we can do, I mean I'm just a contributor to the book, I didn't publish it or edit it Um, but with very small budgets and with a crowdfunding budget you are limited in your reach, you're not going to have a huge poster campaign in all the London train stations and so what I'd like to see is almost these being like entryism you know we need to see the mainstream publishers going okay we need to hear from more working class voices, we need to hear from more BME voices, we need to publish more writers from these backgrounds and get their stories out there in the mainstream as opposed to really fantastic and innovative publishers doing it but having to crowdfund and therefore be on very limited budgets and to me like the conversation needs to become a lot more mainstreamed and entryism is the term isn't it, Like, well, but it should you know it shouldn't be down to and I think after The Good Immigrant there was like lots of mainstream publishers like, patting themselves on the back and it was like it, it came from you. It came from crowdfunding. Like. Yeah, you guys
0: didn't do anything.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, I mean, and what's funny is, like, that you then see publishers try and replicate it, and, you know, I've, I've I've heard about people being in meetings and people talking about the good immigrant effect. And, like, the thing is, a lot of what we did was luck and opportunity and um, the collective of writers and the collective of people who crowdfunded the book. Like, they're... It, a lot of it is stuff that you can't really replicate. Mm. And the thing you can replicate, or the thing that you can do is change the system and change who decides what stories enter the mainstream what yeah. stories are on our bookshelves. And so I'm hoping that's... And
3: what stories have value. Yeah, in, like, yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, another question? Everyone's like, get to the DJ set, guys. I would cut three in the front. Um, so we've got you and then you and then you.
2: Hi, I just wanted to ask. You said you'd been thinking about British values. Have you actually come up with any that aren't kind of values that other countries actually have? Just like you know, being a nice person. You know, that you'd have thought that was a universal human (laughs) value. But what is actually
0: a a British value? Um, An actual nostalgia. I think there's there's something very nostalgic about the British. You know we're constantly looking backwards. You know, we're constantly like revisiting past glories. I mean, we still think that Britpop was like a seminal part of our history. Wasn't that good? Um, No, take it back. (laughs) Champagne Supernova was seven minutes too long. Um, It forever. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Um, but yeah, I think nostalgia and like and that nostalgia does feed into this sort of. Colonial mm. um, gaze—it does feed into like marmite and and you, you like so yeah nostalgia for me. I, I don't know about you guys.
2: Yeah. I I don't even think that's one. I think that other countries are, are capable of nostalgia. <laughs> I really struggle with with um, a, a British one in particular. I can't think of one. No, I'd go with nostalgia,
3: and that's maybe because I've been reading a lot of Mark Fisher lately, and he writes about this kind of being stuck in a past moment and replicating it so that we don't have any sort of future. And I think, you know, the explosion of the keep calm and carry on Mm. kind of aesthetic, I mean, that... On the one hand, it was really lovely that the people who found that poster did not try and get hold of the rights to it and let it be publicly used. And on the other hand, it just brought this kind of... There was a perfect moment that we all have to go back to. And But I think, you know, we can... Aspire to better values and i'd 'd hope that we'd that one day we'll have ditched tolerance and gone for equality or freedom or the the, the things that would th-
0: or a universal declaration of human rights
3: <laughs> i mean it would be nice sorry, <laughs> if we actually didn't think human rights were a bad thing mm-hmm. and we were trying to leave them, which <laughs> i <Isn't laughs> 'll just it? never
2: get over i 'm never getting over it <laughs> like i'll never get over the fact that that has Become the conversation. Um, but isn't Ameri- like making America great again? Isn't that like the most ultimate nostalgia thing ever? Isn't that why, like everything is going wrong in the U.S.? Like yeah. shit nostalgia.
0: Yeah, shit nostalgia. It it it's not just pervades British. the West. <laughs> like um, it's it's interesting talking to m- to my cousins in India about like I was talking to them about this thing around nostalgia. And they just don't like they don't understand it, because, uh, I, and I know they're kind of couching their very specific experience in what is happening in India as a whole. But they were like, so much of what we're doing is about looking forward, mm. and, and that's a really exciting thing to to be a part of because for ages we couldn't, and now we can. And like nostalgia is something that is just not interesting, you know. Uh, so we had you next. And then It's a nice word, it. though,
3: the actual meaning of this, like the, the pain, the it's specific being pain. you so British,
2: you're just like, oh, let's look at nostalgia even more, I love it. I like the etymology,
3: it's, a, it's weird because it's, it's totally misused as a word, it's about the pain of the past, mm-hmm. not about a glorification of the past. And like you love it? I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> etymology, is it etymology, is that the right word?
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm an uh, English teacher, I just wondered, um, as writers, what you thought or what you'd like to see a changing in uh, English writing and reading education? I would,
0: I would like people who um, suggest that maybe they d- diversify the reading lists don't end up being the subject of a Daily Telegraph hate campaign on the front page um, for a very sensible suggestion. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed from talking to English teachers has been about how even though it tends the the core books that tend to be studied never change and then occasionally you get like extended reading that and i think the good immigrant has ended up on like a bunch of extended reading lists um around the immigration like the what is it the writing the other like part of the a level curriculum which has been really really amazing but that's not compulsory reading um so if, i i I know the canon is the canon for a reason, but i, I part of me also thinks we've 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 studied Austen and Shakespeare enough. You know, we we can you know I I feel like it's high time we studied Mallory Blackman and um, the Buddha of Suburbia and you know books that say something about the about our society now.
3: I think one of the, I mean, I could go on and on about Michael Gove's reforms to education, but I won't. But I think one of the real things I've found in working with schools is that the curriculum has become so tight and the sort of, that it becomes very difficult to get someone like me to come into a school and do a creative writing workshop because it's not seen as fitting in with the curriculum. And so I've offered creative writing workshops to schools for free, and some very lovely enterprising students have come after school because the school were like, well, we can't fit this into us. It's not part of the syllabus, so we're not going to do it. And I think that's a real shame. And I think one of the things that I've struggled with as a writer is that I didn't really know how to do writing as a career. I didn't know what opportunities were out there. I didn't do a creative writing course or just... You know, and, and if someone had come in, if I'd had someone like me, <laughs> and I don't mean that in an egotistical way, but come into school and say, this is how you make a living as a writer, this is the opportunity to get out there, let's do some creative writing, let's get your ideas flowing, that would have been really transformative. And I think it's a real loss that the cuts to school funding have become so severe, and the intense exam focus of school curriculums has become so intense that these opportunities to widen young people's creativity are being lost. And I'd, I'd like to see that change in, 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 in English literature teaching. I say that because that's where creative writing would best fit, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I think Shaking Up the Canon would be super exciting. I remember even like when we were reading Shakespeare and like a sexy bit would happen, like all the class would be like, woo, and like, imagine if they were reading The Good Immigrant. How
0: and the, and the sex bit it happens.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you I'm laugh, but you know, there is
0: there <laughs> sex in the. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, something as exciting as that that speaks to, in the, in the say, like uses slang and oh my goodness, it sounds like an actual person is talking to me. I just think that would be super exciting and it would engage so many more people.
0: We can hope, I think. Uh, and we've got last question over here. Um, we will be hanging around afterwards if you want to still sort of chat to us about things. Um, but we will need to see receipts for those books you've purchased first. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't got it, so (laughs) you can... If you buy Sammy some crisps, (laughs) she will answer all of your questions. No, no, that's not true. Um, Sorry, yes.
1: Um, I guess my question's in regards to this idea of being identified as British. and For example, when I fill out forms, I always have the option of British. But I don't feel British in myself. I kind of see of the UK as like separate countries with kind of really interesting cultures. I don't even see myself as completely English. I've kind of moved around from, I was born in Essex, but I moved when I was young, so I'm not quite from Essex. And then I moved around to different parts of the country. And I've never gone to like Cornwall or the North or anything. And my wife's British Asian, her parents are Indian some of the family from in Canada, in India. My sister-in-law is from Poland. And I'd hate for any way for that to be a sense of, you I not to be, you know, it's just discrimination, I guess. I wouldn't want that idea like Britain to kind of discriminate against any of that because I see it as one big tribe and there shouldn't be any kind of form of, I don't know, I'm not sure what kind of question that is, or is there a Why sense that of right? what you see as yourselves as British?
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting because for years and years I I really struggled with it, and you know when when I was growing up um, we had Lord Norman Tebbit's cricket test where um, you you know what cricket team you followed de- depend like you had to follow the English cricket team otherwise you hadn't assimilated into British society enough and. Um, this idea of Britishness I think is really interesting because when you're a diaspora kid like, like I am, like you and you described your wife as British Asian, like I described myself as British Asian and British Asian for me is is imprecise because you know, where where are you from? London, I know. Um where are you really from? London. But where are your parents from, you know, my dad's from Kenya and my mum's from Yemen. Um so like the Asian part of it is is a nostalgia thing for me. It's like it's sort of holding on to something from long ago in our family's past. And nothing f- made me feel more British than in the run-up to the election, where uh, the referendum, rather, where you could see the immigration debate becoming sinister and seedy and disgusting and racist. And... And I thought, this isn't... uh, You know, it's it's what you wrote in your 3am piece. I want my country back. Like, I suddenly found what I wanted to fight for, and it was the fact that I finally understood what it was to be British. And I finally felt like a person in that society, and I wanted to fight for it. And one day, like, I think... It was like the day of the, you know, Nigel Farage standing with his disgusting legs akimbo in front of that... (laughs) Breaking point poster um, and i I posted up a, uh, on, I tweeted a picture of me and my dad, and I said, uh, I wrote something like my dad 's from Kenya, my mum's from in uh, from yemen we're sort of Indian, but I was born here i'm i 'm british and i 'm hashtag proud child of an immigrant and I, like I did that in like two seconds while I was walking out of the watershed to go home. I cycled home, I got home and the post had gone viral because like so many other people have been posting up pictures of their parents and telling their family histories and talking about their immigration stories. And the thing that isn't often acknowledged, especially now in this country, is that this is a nation full of people whose ancestors came from other places, you know, in that sort of imprecise and slightly naff slogan, we are all immigrants, you know. And for maybe that is maybe that is a British value that we are all other, and what we need is like a collective identity for that, or a collective acceptance of otherness and difference. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have anything you wanted to add in.
3: I was going to cheat and read a bit from my essay, if that's okay. <laughs> <it. laughs> <laughs> is that is that really cheating?
0: Yes, but I'll allow it. <laughs> so,
3: it's not so much about being British, but about that, that identity around class, and so I wrote, growing up outside of class has had a huge and definitive impact on the stories I want to tell and the writing I want to do. I'm determined to have the loud, outspoken, rowdy voice of the ruling government of my childhood refused to allow my family and the families that looked like mine. That experience of being silenced, of being unspeakable, has had an untold influence on my ambition to write and to use my writing to tell not just my own story, but the stories that have been ignored or gone unheard. Because as a writer, I can carve out the space where finally I belong. So I know that's not really answering your question, but it just felt kind of appropriate in how do we identify, where do we belong, how do we sit within spaces?
2: Um, I've had a bit of a weird one, because when Brexit happened, I was in Berlin and I was like, ah. bloody English people in my country again because um, I always used to think oh Welsh people are better <laughs> which is so stupid and embarrassing and um, when I realised that Welsh people are just as stupid as everyone else <laughs> then I really ha- I, I don't know I don't, it just like really triggered like some sort of identity crisis in me because I've just been raised so as a as, as a Welsh na- like nationalist <laughs> and um, now I don't know what I am because I don't feel British and I don't feel Welsh and I don't really feel anything, it's all there
0: anymore. <laughs> <laughs> On that uplifting note, um, we're, <laughs> we're <laughs> going to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for coming out tonight, um, thank you to the Arnofini for hosting us, thank you to Grayson Perry for a thought-provoking exhibition, thank you to all of you for coming uh, as my daughter would say, say thank you to yourself. Thank you, Nikesh, for hosting <laughs> this. Uh, and most of all, uh, before I say thank you to these guys, The Good Immigrant and Know Your Place essays on the working class by the working class are on sale on the other side of those stores. Um, and we're going to be DJing some bangers in the bar. <laughs> God, I sound so old. Anyway, <laughs> um, thank you so much to Sean Norris yes. and to Sammy Jones. And to Brexit. Thank you.